Father Thomas asked me to talk about Big Bang cosmology and Christianity. Uh, so the Big Bang theory, um, you know, which is at the root of, of the, the cosmology it describes, uh, is our best scientific explanation for the, the origins of the observable universe. So that includes us, you know, the planets, the stars, the galaxies. And what this talk is really about is, uh, is this cosmology what it is? Um, is teleology or, or purpose? And how to understand it in light of what we believe uh, through revelation and through faith uh, about creation. Uh, but before uh, getting into Big Bang cosmology, I do want to take a, a few minutes uh, to introduce some of its historical competitors, uh, which actually also have present day uh, analogs. So the first uh, alternative cosmology that uh, we should consider is the mythological or pantheistic worldview that was uh, commonplace in the ancient Middle East. Uh, so for those of you who have read uh, the Numa Elish, you get a very engaging uh, description of this kind of cosmology. Uh, so that's uh, what I'm showing on the screen. Uh, so in, in this mythological cosmology, the cosmos itself is imbued with divinity. So if we can go back to the stars, the planets, the moon, the sun uh, are all divine um, in some way or another. And so are you know, the chaotic waters and many other things that we think about as aspects of, of nature. Uh, so this kind of cosmos uh, does have a beginning uh, but it's not necessarily an, an absolute one. So if we can go back to the Numa Elish, uh, this word begins by the, the co-mingling of two watery, watery principles. Um, so it is historical, it has the beginning, uh, but obviously these watery principles are there already. Uh, this historical aspect is something that it has in common uh, with the cosmos described in, in Genesis. So our own creation uh, story, uh, where God creates and you know, speaks the, the word and its inhabitants into existence. Uh, but the cosmology described in Genesis uh, is also radically different from the mythological one in many ways. Uh, it doesn't seem to presuppose that there is something uh, before creation starts. And in addition, if we look at Genesis 1, in, in many ways, it, it seems to be very conscious, polemical uh, against the word where, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars are gods. So in Genesis 1, uh, these the sun, the moon, the stars are simply spoken into existence and uh, are there to keep time. So, uh, so this means that the biblical cosmos is is not ordered by the doings and personalities of different divinities, uh, but it instead is ordered and run through different princi principles, so we could call them uh, laws. Uh, the second uh, competitor, cosmological competitor to the, the Big Bang theory um, is a cosmos that is so well ordered, so law abiding, that it doesn't really change substantially over time. Or if it does, it happens as sort of regular uh, cycles. So the Aristotelian cosmology, uh, the one that was uh, assumed by St. Thomas Aquinas uh, is one example of this. Uh, so are many Eastern uh, cosmologies. 
And also the cosmology that emerged after the scientific revolution, so the enlightenment cosmology, um, which often is described as uh, some sort of mechanical clockwork, that once you set it going, it just runs the same way uh, throughout uh, eternity. There's actually also uh, a more recent version of this, the so-called steady state cosmological model of the mid 20th century, which is the most recent competitor of the Big Bang theory, which acknowledged that there was um, things moving away from one another in the universe. Maybe there was even expanding, but still kept the, the cosmology that it didn't change over time, but you basically just filled in the gaps um, as, as galaxies were, were expanding away from one another. So all of these uh, cosmologies have in common that there's no real history. Uh, there's no sort of natural development or unfolding uh, over time. So if we were to, to sum up uh, these sort of cosmological competitors, uh, we have the pantheistic or mythological cosmos, which is historical, uh, but not necessarily expected to operate by laws of nature or to display or in other words, to display predictable uh, and well-ordered you know, changes over time. And that means that it's not um, very compatible with a scientific project, which relies on these patterns and laws being there. On the other hand, we have the Aristotelian or Enlightenment cosmologies, which operate according to fixed laws, uh, but do not readily evolve or unfold over time. They're, they're nat naturally eternal. Now, the biblical worldview is in contrast to both. It is intrinsically historical and it's law abiding. And so um, is the contemporary Big Bang cosmology, which is what I want to get to next. So the, the science of cosmology, uh, which is really a field that straddles physics and astronomy, uh, has revealed that we live in this really large and very old, but not infinitely old uh, universe. So the visible universe, um, so, which is the part of the universe that we can see, uh, is 93 billion light years across. Um, by comparison, the distance from, from Boston to Rome is about 20 milli light seconds. And the distance from us to the sun is about eight light minutes. So this is just unfathomable, unfathomable the, the kind of distances we're talking about. And when compared to the kind of length scales that, that we are used to, the visible universe doesn't seem that different from, from infinity. And this whole almost infinite universe, um, almost about 14 billion years ago, this whole expanse fit into something in a a very small fraction of the size of an atomic nucleus, uh, equally impossible, I think, to actually imagine. Uh, so this very compact early state of the universe, this you know, fraction of an, uh, of an atom kind of, kind of size and its subsequent expansion is what we colloquially refer to as the Big Bang. So I'm going to continue uh, sort of reviewing the different stages of the Big Bang. But before doing that, I want to talk a bit about this sort of initial part of the Big Bang, you know, when everything begins and how that uh, compares to our understanding of creation. 
So when the idea of the Big Bang cosmology was first introduced in the 1930s, uh, it was introduced by uh, Georges Lemaitre, um, and it was generally greeted with a lot of skepticism uh, by most of the scientific community. It was, however, rather quickly embraced by the Pope um, as a, you know, a very excellent scientific model of the cosmos. Uh, so from a historical point of view, why, why this skepticism and why this enthusiasm? Now, the prevailing cosmology at the time um, was, as I already mentioned, an inheritance from the Enlightenment, from the scientific revolution, when Newton and others developed this amazing uh, mechanical models of the universe that seemed to describe uh, the universe really well. And that seemed to suggest that the, our universe was something like a very well-functioning uh, clockwork, which had always been operating according to the same kind of mechanism and always would be, barring any supernatural intervention. So the intuition of most scientists who were not supernaturalists by the early 20th century uh, was that the universe was constant uh, in time. And uh, we can add to that that there had been a, a lot of astronomical developments uh, in the decades leading up uh, to Lemaitre uh, that had shown that our star was just one of many and that it seemed like on large scales, uh, the universe was approximately the same wherever, in whatever direction uh, you looked. So you had this very strong intuition of a universe that's constant both in time and then homogeneous uh, in, in space. So it's not so strange then if you have this very strong concept or strong worldview, strong belief in this worldview, that um, Lemaitre just having this brilliant idea was not sufficient to sway people into, into his camp. But as time progressed then more astronomical observations came in, uh, evidence really began to mount that Lemaitre was right. And as we do live in, in an expanding universe, and one that started from something uh, very small and very compact. Uh, but yet um, there were many who continued to not uh, accept uh, his conclusions and uh, um, not an insignificant fraction of these skeptics uh, thought that the whole idea of the Big Bang um, sounded suspiciously religious and it really didn't help uh, that uh, Georges Lemaitre was, in fact, Father Lemaitre, which you can see on the screen in front of you, a Catholic uh, Belgian priest. Uh, this may also help to explain the Pope's enthusiasm. And by 1951, so before this was a fully established theory within the scientific community, uh, Pope Pius XII declared that Lemaitre's idea, idea and theory uh, provided a scientific validation for Catholicism and its understanding of, of creation. Uh, Lemaitre uh, was actually not very happy about this and uh, gently uh, rebuked the Pope for using his scientific theory to try to prove creation. And uh, he eventually convinced uh, the Pope to stop using the Big Bang theory as evidence for the theological truth of creation. Uh, that is the truth that the, the whole cosmos uh, has the beginning in time and was created out of nothing by God. Um, but why do I think this is right? Um, superficially, it doesn't seem like the Big Bang is actually a description 
um, of the universe coming into existence uh, from nothing, uh, just as we believe by revelation? Well, the Big Bang theory describes the beginning of the universe and how it unfolded in time. But it doesn't actually describe how the universe came into existence. Um, it, nor does it allow us to rule out that there is an eternal material order, an eternal cosmos within which the Big Bang occurred. One could imagine, and many philosophers and scientists have, that our universe is only a bubble uh, so sitting on a larger superstructure, um, or maybe it's something that just popped into existence out of a quantum field. In both cases, you have something else that's there before that could, at least in theory, uh, be eternal or infinite in time. So the Big Bang as a scientific uh, reality, uh, I would say it is a, is a beautiful and really powerful icon uh, of creation. Uh, but it is not creation itself. And in many ways, we are, we're actually not in a very different place uh, compared to St. Thomas Aquinas, um, who uh, took, put quite some energy into address whether it was possible uh, to prove that the universe has a beginning uh, or prove that it uh, is um, infinite in time uh, on philosophical grounds. So in his time, uh, many Arab Aristotelians, uh, such as Avicenna and Averroes, as well as uh, Aristotelians that were contemporary uh, to St. Thomas in, in the Western world, uh, uh, thought that you could prove, or thought that they had proved, that the word was eternal, and that creation from nothing was impossible. Um, so you had people who thought they could actually philosophically and in some sense, pre-scientifically pre proved that, that the universe was eternal. Um, by contrast, you also had uh, theologians, philosophers like St. Bonaventure, who thought he could prove that the world must have had a beginning. And you can find modern uh, adherence to both positions. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas demonstrated really beautifully uh, in multiple places, including in the Summa, uh, that neither is actually possible to prove from a philosophical point of view. And that it is only through revelation that we know that the word has a beginning. And even in the age of Big Bang cosmology, this remain, uh, remains true. But let's uh, return to the exposition uh, of, the, of the Big Bang cosmology, which, which we had begun before this little interlude. So as the universe started to exponential, hypercompact and very hot state, it, it cooled down. And as it cooled, um, more and more complex particles could stick together. And atomic particles like protons uh, became stable within a couple of minutes uh, of the beginning of the Big Bang. Um, during the subsequent 18 minutes or so, the conditions were just right, just had the right temperature for fusion, so this is the sticking together of uh, protons and neutrons to form larger nuclei than the proton, which is the nucleus of the hydrogen atom. And uh, some of the protons and neutrons fused together to form helium nuclei, and, and a tiny bit of lithium. Uh, but uh, 
the universe continued to expand. You rapidly moved into uh, it rapidly moved into a place where it was too cold to continue this fusion. And pretty much the only elements that were formed in the Big Bang were hydrogen and helium. And there were just no other elements around, no carbon, no oxygen, and so on for a very long time. About 400,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe has cooled down enough that uh, electrons could start staying attached to protons, forming uh, complete atoms. So, so an atom, when we think about the elements, um, consists of a, of a nucleus of protons and neutrons, and then an electron cloud uh, around it. But these electrons can be knocked off by uh, photons, by light particles, uh, if they are energetic enough. And up until 400,000 years after the Big Bang, these light particles or photons uh, were, too, were so energetic that they just continuously knocked off the electrons and there was no way for atoms to stay, to stay intact. Uh, but this uh, combination of, uh, of um, nuclei, atomic nuclei and, and electrons at 400,000 years after the Big Bang uh, marks the time when matter on the one hand, so the elements, and light on the other started their independent existence. Uh, as someone who really loves going back to, to Genesis, uh, I cannot really uh, ponder this scientific truth without at the same time uh, thinking about Genesis uh, 1-4, where, where it says that you know, God saw that the light was good and God then separated the light from, from the darkness. And modern cosmology, I think, has, has given us a second really powerful icon of how God creates, with the Big Bang itself being the very first one. Uh, of um, combination of electrons and uh, protons to form atoms uh, also provided, uh, provides us with the very first picture of the universe. So when the light was released from, from the matter, uh, it uh, started a journey through the universe that has continued through this day. And uh, we can still see the faint afterglow uh, of, this, of this event, which is the cosmic microwave uh, background radiation. And this signal was first discovered in the 1960s. And when it was, it was the sort of the final conclusive piece of evidence for that Lemaitre had been right uh, about the, the Big Bang uh, theory. Now, one of the things you can see if you look at uh, images of the wave background is that it's structured. It is not a smooth kind of radiation, but you have sort of over densities and under densities of, of photons if you look across, across the sky. Uh, and this means that sometime between the Big Bang itself and 400,000 years later, when this, these photons were released, um, some structure had already begun to develop in the universe. We no longer had sort of a smooth bubble uh, expanding. And the, the little ripples that we see in, in these images of the cosmic microwave background radiation, those are the seeds uh, of what would become clusters of galaxies uh, you know, millions and billions uh, years later. One of those clusters uh, would eventually contain our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Uh, 
a few hundred million years after the release of the cosmic microwave background radiation and after the Big Bang, uh, the universe uh, had cooled down even more. Uh, it had cooled down enough for some of the gas, this is some of the hydrogen that formed in the Big Bang, to start imploding in on itself under its own gravity. And this is how stars form. So the first stars uh, started forming, I said, talking a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. And that totally changed the kind of cosmos that we lived in. Up until then, the universe had been dark. And it's actually referred to as the dark ages. Um, that's, the, that's the technical term. And uh, suddenly, we, we, the universe is, is relit re by the stars. These stars uh, very quickly went from quiescently burning stars to exploding in something analogous to uh, supernovae, which we, we see is how massive stars die today. And through the supernovae, they spread the whole periodic table of elements into the universe for the first time enabling. So we have th now we have things like carbon, oxygen, and iron in the universe. And this means that we have the material to form, for example, planets. Um, to form things like water um, and organics, sort of things that's needed for, for life to be able to exist. There, there are several things that stand out about the Big Bang cosmology, especially if we uh, contrast it with some of the competitors that we talked about before. First of all, as I've already hinted, uh, it is uh, historical. Uh, so we, we live uh, in, in, in a cosmos that, that has um, a beginning and that has a direction. It is unfolding over time. So the cosmos, um, though, is not just different compared to how it was a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. It is also more interesting. So, you know, once there was this almost you know, almost homogenous, just bubble of things expanding out. Uh, now there are galaxies, stars, planets, molecules, even life. Uh, and these arrived over time, building on past events. A second thing is that um, our universe unfolded uh, through and by laws of nature. Uh, one of the ways we can see this uh, is that there are enormous simulations of the, of the cosmos. Um, and how it unfolded over time. And these simulations can reproduce many of the structures and processes that we observe with our telescopes. So one of the advantages in astronomy is that if you look really far away, you're also looking back in time. And that means that we actually have observations of how the universe changed over time, going back to at least sort of a billion years after uh, the Big Bang. So going back around 13 billion years. Uh, now, these simulations, uh, which are amazing feats of science, uh, work as well as they do uh, because this whole development, this whole um, so direction, of the directionality of the cosmos uh, depends on a pretty small set of uh, laws of physics. And when we combine those laws with what we understand about the initial conditions, things that we learned, for example, from the this radiation that enables us to predict uh, quite well how the universe changed over 
Now, a third point is that however impressive uh, these simulations are, um, they're still quite far from being able to model the cosmos uh, from first principles. And there are still many fundamental aspects of the cosmos that are still very mysterious. Uh, perhaps most famously, uh, the majority of the universe is actually invisible to us. Uh, it consists of so-called dark energy and dark matter, both of which we don't know exactly what they are. So on the one hand, the universe appears highly ordered, but it, it is ordered in a way that is still beyond our current understanding. So the overall cosmology, so think about you know, the universe developing over time, um, is then characterized by a combination of historicity, orderliness, and patterns that point towards laws that are not yet grasped or, or fully understood by us. Uh, the same thing is true if we zoom in uh, on a single planet uh, that is our own. Um, so about 8 billion years after the Big Bang, uh, dust grains, so basically sub-micron-sized um, dust grains that formed as a part of these supernovae explosions, um, were, were swirling around our young sun and uh, they started um, coagulating together to form larger and larger bodies and eventually they formed the earth. Uh, so the earth was populated, was then populated by water and by simple organic molecules, uh, probably in large part being delivered to, to the young planet from, from space. And sometime between about three and a half and four billion years ago, these simple molecules began to combine into the large and complex ones that we associate with life. So molecules like RNA and proteins and, and cell membranes. We, we don't yet understand the precise process through which this happened. But what we do know is that the chances that carbon and other elements combined you know, completely by, by unguided chance into functional RNA and DNA chains and proteins um, are really too small to, to take seriously. Uh, this suggests something really interesting, which is that on the planet like the Earth, the chemistry has a trajectory and it has a trajectory towards life. Uh, this does not necessarily, or I would say, perhaps even likely, involve a supernatural or miraculous guidance. Rather, it means that there seems to be something inherent in the laws of chemistry that enabled the building blocks of life to assemble prebiotically. Uh, I said we don't uh, yet fully know these laws, and there are no guarantees that we ever will. But the observation that a transition from simple chemistry and simple molecules to the building blocks of life happen on at least one planet, um, is already very suggestive that there is really directionality built into the chemistry in, in the cosmos. And I would say that this is the intuition of the scientists, both chemists, um, the, the scientists that work on origins of life and on finding life on other planets. Uh, this is true for chemists that try to deduce the pathways uh, from chemistry to biology. Um, so if there wasn't, um, if this, if you didn't get um, it, an evolution from these simple molecules to these very complex ones to life, uh, 
pretty frequently, there's no way we would actually be able to figure out what the pathways are, what the laws are, since uh, the scientific method does uh, rely on being able to experiment and being able to repeat a process over and over again. Uh, that there is um, something that causes chemistry to turn into life uh, is also the intuition of astronomers they are looking for life on other planets. Again, if we didn't think that this was something that happened pretty frequently, it would not be very useful to be spending a lot of telescope time and looking for signs of life on some of the thousands of exoplanets that have now been discovered. So detecting life on even one other planet uh, would provide scientific evidence for an argument, which we already hold to be true by faith, uh, which is that the word, the universe, was created to be filled with living things. So we have already seen then that there are several signs of convergence between the cosmos described in Genesis and the cosmos described by the Big Bang uh, cosmology. Uh, both have an emphasis on the beginning and on creation unfolding in a series of steps. Uh, but I think it's only fair then to ask if there are, there are other aspects that should trouble us or that challenge, challenge Christian orthodoxy about creation and our place within it. So one fairly common criticism of the biblical narrative is that it's so centered on the earth and on humans. Now, this may have been reasonable in a world where the earth uh, comprised the cosmos, um, as it seems to basically in, in the cosmos described in Genesis. But to many, this narrative became less reasonable once we discovered that our cosmos is very large, perhaps infinitely large, and we seem so very small in comparison. Um, this train of thought, um, I think we associate with modern cosmology, but it is far from new. Uh, or the, the, the psalmist uh, was exclaiming, no, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So compared to humans, there were always things that were bigger and even the ancient cosmology seemed exceedingly large compared to us, to the people who inhabited it. Uh, but I would say if there's one thing that biblical revela revelation tells us, it is that how big something is and its significance are not the same thing. Now, it is through the incarnation of God, first as an embryo and then that grew into a baby, that the whole world was saved. And I think in general, we should be very skeptical of arguments that use the size and the vastness of, of space as an argument against a personal God deeply interested in our doings. We could as well turn it around and state that the size of the universe actually shows the superabundance of God's gift. I mean, what, what a garden he has created for us. And this too is what the psalmist seems to realize as he continues already in the, in the next verse that uh, yet you have made him little less than a God crowned with glory and honor. So if the size of the universe does not directly threaten our belief that God is intensely interested in humans and the planet we inhabit, how about the location, uh, our location in the cosmos? There's a common story told um, 
by skeptics of the Christian story, which is that as history unfolds, we have gradually moved away from the cosmic center to its periphery. So in the pre-scientific age, you know, before Copernicus and Galileo, we believed that the earth uh, was the center of the universe. And in that era, maybe it made sense to believe that the earth was created especially with humans in mind and that humans, you know, being the most intelligent creatures on this planet were the pinnacle of creation and um, that any creator would have a special care for, for these creatures and want to have a special relationship with them. But then Copernicus, Galileo and Kepler um, moved the earth from the center uh, into orbit around the sun which seemed bad enough. But then modern astronomy moved our sun from the center, uh, in, fr from, from the center of the world into an orbit around our galaxy and actually quite far out in the galaxy. And then our galaxy turned out to be just one of a hundred billion others. And now we know that these galaxies are not just full of stars, but also full of planetary systems. And if we're just one word of many, why would God take such care in making our word a garden? And how can we believe that the, the creature he placed here on this pale blue dot, uh, he somehow loved enough for his son to become incarnate as one of them? Um, this does seem to pose a threat to, to Christianity uh, as traditionally understood. So I think not. If we think about why we, the earth resides where it is, it's pretty much because the loss of nature would not have it sitting at any of the places where previous cosmologists would place it. Uh, and uh, God seems to really take delight in letting order unfold according to this loss in our cosmos. So for example, we, if the earth was, the solar system was placed at the center of the galaxy, we would be sitting inside a supermassive black hole, which is not conducive to life. Or if we, the earth was sitting at the center of the solar system, uh, well, it would be a bit too close to the sun for, for comfort. So if we're looking for God um, to reveal himself, you know, primarily through miracles, uh, our location in the solar system and in the galaxy might be somewhat disappointing, uh, but that's not how God has been typically uh, understood to reveal himself through creation. Uh, whether you read the Psalms or the church fathers, uh, it's the amazing order of the universe that reveals God uh, as its intelligent creator rather than the dis any disruptions in that order. So again, the psalmist you know, declares that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament proclaims the works of his hand, day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night whispers knowledge. And as our understanding of the universe has increased, we have uncovered increasing layers of order. We know now that planets form naturally whenever a star forms, and one day I hope we will also know the laws that describe under which conditions life originates. A third possible contention between uh, the, the Big Bang cosmology and biblical cosmology concerns the specific steps that creation unfolds through in the Bible and the steps it unfolds through within the Big Bang theory. Um, it would seem like if nothing else, uh, the Big Bang theory threatens, threatens a literal reading of the Bible. 
Before going into details, I, I do want to quickly note that clearly Pius XII did not think that was the case. And it sort of comes down to definition of the word literal. Uh, if by literal, we mean reading Genesis like a science textbook, textbook uh, then there is uh, a very real conflict. But even a cursory look at the content and structure of Genesis 1 um, should dissuade us from thinking that this is a reasonable reading. I mean, if we start with, some, with something like Genesis 1.13, we read, you know, evening came and morning followed the third day. So we're on the third day. And then God said, let there be light in the dome of the sky to separate day from night. Let them mark the seasons, the days and the years, and serve as lights in the dome of the sky to illuminate the earth. And so it happened. God made the two great lights, the greater one to govern the day and the lesser one to govern the night and the stars. Uh, I would postulate that also a few thousand years ago, it was quite clear that the concepts of day and night depended on the existence of the sun. And yet the sun is nowhere to be seen until the third day. Uh, so a textbook reading seems uh, ruled out. Now, if by literal, we instead mean what the author intended, uh, then the conflict between the biblical and scientific accounts um, is, is much less clear. Now, the author of Genesis clearly believes that the universe as he knows it is a loving creation of God. And there's nothing in contemporary cosmology or astronomy that contradicts that. The human author also clearly believes that there's order in the cosmos and that this order is intentional. I would say that contemporary astronomy would be impossible without that. The human author clearly did not know the size and age of the universe as well as we know it today. And uh, I would say there, there's really no hint of, you know, the kind of cosmological distances that we now know are true in the Bible. One of the things we can conclude from that is that an understanding of modern cosmology is not essential for salvation. Uh, but that does not mean, I think, that the sort of details of the of the, of the universe are unimportant to know about or that knowledge of the Big Bang is devoid of meaning. I would actually argue that the Big Bang cosmology goes far beyond not threatening our understanding of a, of, you know, of a, a biblical cosmology, but rather provides multiple spiritual aids. We have already heard about some of the amazing icons provided by the Big Bang cosmology, the most impressive one being the Big Bang itself. Um, while not itself the moment of creation, uh, it's difficult to think about a better icon of it. And furthermore, uh, an historical cosmos undeniably serves as a reminder that it is strange that the cosmos exists at all you know, keeping our contingency ever before our eyes. Now, the philosophical argument uh, for the existence of God, for example, from contingency does not depend on whether the universe is infinite in time or not. But I would still argue that it becomes more intuitive uh, that there must have been um, something creating the universe and something holding it up uh, when you have this great icon of its, uh, of its beginning. And that we are in a rather privileged position that way compared to, for example, people living during the Enlightenment. Um, a second 
uh, aspect of uh, the Big Bang cosmology is just how how law driven it is and how it shows that natural laws uh, allow for there to be unfolding uh, with time. And, and this law driven unfolding really endows creation with a beautiful dignity. You know, it enables it to take part in its own development through secondary causation over time. And in that way, the evolving cosmos uh, becomes an icon of God's goodness and delight uh, in sharing his creative powers and governance of the word. Uh, both with us and with things that are not conscious of themselves. So one of my favorite examples of this is our very recent discovery of uh, these dust disks uh, around young stars uh, and the dark lanes that we see in them, which comes from planets being forming in these dust disks right now, uh, just through um, the, the laws of nature operating on, on these disks. Now, third, uh, a historical cosmos allows for things to exist over time that could not have coexisted in the same time and place otherwise, uh, allowing for aspects of God's glory to, to exist or to shine through um, as, as the universe develops. Now, it would not have been very good for a living planet uh, to be sitting inside of a burst of star formation. Um, the radiation from that would have killed any surface life uh, on a nearby planet. But these bursts uh, were absolutely essential to create the, the galactic environment uh, we live in and you know, all the elements that we needed for our planet to form. And they also make for a really glorious and beautiful uh, event to look at. And finally, I would say that by creating a universe with a beginning and with a possible infinite expanse, God has provided a really beautiful icon of the infinity of his power. And this might be reason enough for creating the universe in such a way as he has. Perhaps he uh, also wishes us to use this vastness of space to stretch our minds, uh, providing a contemplative path from science to him. And fully grasping you know, what infinity is or what all powerful means is, is really not possible for us. The fact that we cannot comprehend God or his plans can be cause for doubt that something like him could even exist in the first place. I think it's beautifully providential that his cosmos provides an you know, array of natural things that are also too big and too complex and too powerful to really wrap our head around. If nothing else, uh, that should convince us that just because something is too big for us to grasp does not mean that it does not exist. The universe is too big for us and it is definitely there. So to conclude, uh, we live in a universe of unimaginable expanse and, and age. It is an evolving universe where new structure and things emerge over time with a clear direction. The origin and evolution of our universe as revealed by science uh, has often been put in, up in opposition to the creation described in the Bible. Um, my proposal is that rather than threatening our belief in divine revelation and providence, these scientific discoveries have provided us with new and powerful icons of God's love, of his generosity, his creativity, his authorship, and his power. And I will stop there for any questions.
Right. Thank you very, very much, uh, Dr. Oberg. Um, it looks like we have a, a few questions uh, in the in the chat. Um, so I think the way we'll try to do this is I will I will call on you, and if you can turn your microphone on and and, and uh, read your question. And so because of that, I apologize in advance for any names that I pronounce, and I continue to apologize to Dr. Oberg, who I have asked many, many times how to pronounce her name, and continue to change it in my head, and I apologize. Um, so the first uh, comes from, uh, I believe, uh, Spiridon Boutrophines. Hello, thank you very much for your very inspiring, very informative uh, presentation. I have a question about um, um, the eternity of laws. Uh, you said at the beginning that the, there is a contrast between the, the Eastern um, um, traditions and Aristotelian tradition. And according to the ancient, the Aristotelian tradition, the laws of nature are eternal, as well as the species that uh, inhabit the universe. Uh, is there any evidence that um, laws age? I mean, I have heard that many times, many people are talking about that, but I don't know anything uh, really relevant about that. And is there any evidence also that natural constants velocity of light or gravitational constant or things like that change? Yeah, oh, thank you. That, that's a great question. So I'll have a first stab, a stab at it and maybe Father Thomas wants to uh, supplement. Uh, so starting with your second question, so when it comes to fundamental constants, uh, people have tried to look back in time and see if there is any evidence of change over sort of billions of, of, uh, of years and there's no evidence. So this doesn't mean we can rule it out, but there is no evidence uh, of changing constants to date. Um, as for the laws, there's um, uh, the sort of overall answer is the same. That I think the amazing thing is actually that it seems like the laws are constant, and yet that leads to this uh, incredible emergence of new structures and new processes. The only caveat to that is that at the very beginning of the Big Bang, in this like super dense state, um, it seems like the laws were coupled in different ways compared to how they are today and sort of separated out from one another very, very early on in the Big Bang. Now, the idea there, though, is that still they, uh, it's not like the laws themselves change, but it is really how on uh, what kind of um, sort of state uh, you're in. But I'll let Father Thomas supplement that since he's the actual physical. I, I, I don't have a whole lot to offer on that, I guess. But yeah, they, they, it, from what I understand, I mean, there are people who have proposed um, the possibility of the changing of, of, of the uh, various physical constants and, and argued for why that might be helpful for various problems. Uh, but there's no observational evidence throughout. And yeah, the, the phenomenon that, that, that Dr. Oberg is, is referring to is kind of the idea that many of the forces that for us are very distinct in the way that, um, you know, so the way that electricity and magnetism is very obviously different than the way that the forces of the nucleus work at, at, at that dense uh, uh, compact state of, of the Big Bang, they were somehow the same. There's, there's a, a, a mathematical pattern by which at lower energies, they end up acting differently where um, this, the, 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 the force that was at these higher energies sort of have multiple effects at lower energies. Um, so, so thank you very much for your question. 
Um, so uh, uh, the second question, I think that uh, I believe it's Guillermo, and he uh, asked me to read it for him. So, um, and the question is, he would like just hear your thoughts or appreciation of uh, the anthropic principle um, in the form that it takes in uh, a variety of writings. He references particularly John Barrow and Frank Tipler. Um, uh, and I was, he's, he would like to know what your thoughts on it in general. Is it helpful? Are there problems? Uh, so just what, what are your, your thoughts on the anthropic principle? Uh, sure. Uh, so, so first of all, so the anthropic principle, what, what it refers to is that um, the, the constants that we were just talking about, these constants that are so important for, for basically governing how the laws of nature works, uh, these um, seem to be very well tuned for having the kind of universe we have where stars, planets, and life can exist. And if you start changing those constants in, in models of the cosmos, but let's say 10, 20%, you go from having this really interesting universe to having something that basically collapses in on itself even before it got started. And there's no, we don't know why these constants are tuned the way they are. There's not uh, something that follows from the laws of physics as we understand them. So that's uh, then there's sort of three basically possible explanations for that are not, by the way, uh, mutually exclusive uh, for why we get this very, what looks like a very fine-tuned universe for having beings like us in it. Uh, one is that it was purposefully created to bring four stars, planets, and life. Uh, and uh, that's where it's sometimes used as an argument for God's existence. Uh, another option is that there is some sort of super uh, law of physics that we have not yet discovered that basically forces these constants to take on the values that they have. And the third option is what I was alluding to in the talk that we don't know if we're the only universe, we might be one of an infinite number of universes and all of these different universes, you know, have different versions of our laws with different constants of nature and we just happen to be in the one where things got that got it right. And as I said, these, these are not mutually exclusive. All three uh, could, could be true. Uh, so I don't think it on its own is a, it, it's not evidence for God's existence, but I think it is something that's more of a suggestion or an icon of his goodness. And uh, uh, I said, what more would I say? Uh, the other two ideas that this is either coming uh, out of some unknown law of physics or that it's coming from this having these billions of, of universes, those two are currently statements of belief. Uh, they are not something that the scientific method has shown to be true. Uh, so not, these are, this is a very speculative realm. And I think I'll stop there. Very good. Um, so let's see. Um... The next question uh, from, uh, I believe it's uh, Jeffrey Wooler. If you'd like to uh, yes, thank you read your question. Or, yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Ober, for your talk, especially at the end, how you read, you know, your reading of the Book of Nature and, and reflection on the, on the sort of icon of, of God's providence and goodness. So these days I'm reading Simon Conway Morris's books, um, particular Life Solutions from 2003. And he goes into quite some detail. I'm still kind of plodding my way through the beginning. It's kind of encyclopedic um, about in the, in the beginning, he's talking about the bias stereochemistry 
um, in terms of um, isomers in carbonaceous meteorites. They tend to be just totally uniform uh, uh, compared with life. There's just huge biases in, in, uh, in the stereochemistry of actual you know, living, living organisms. So um, I, I wonder if you have, if you've kind of maybe have some, if you're up on the literature because of your research um, and uh, what are your thoughts on that? And if there's been any, I mean, the, the book's from 2003 and we're in, in 2021. So maybe there's been some important discoveries or ongoing thought. So I haven't read the book, uh, I guess it's the, the first. So would it be possible for you to sort of specify your question a bit further if there's something like specific that you're curious about? Have, have we discovered any, um, any, have we measured any um, organic molecules where there is uh, a lot of bias in, in the stereochemistry or, or again and again, are we confirming that the sort of uniform distribution of things that come from space? So I don't believe there's a uniform dis uniform distribution in things that come from space in almost any aspect. So there are many different ways that molecules can molecules as well as elements uh, can differ from one another. Well, you can have um, different isotopic compositions, so more carbon thirteen, less carbon thirteen. Uh, there's a wide distribution of that in space. Uh, when it comes to how the molecules are put together. Uh, so what kind of organic molecules we see, there's also uh, a wide distribution of that in meteorites. I think one of the things that maybe was starting to happen when this book came out, but it's probably been more in the past decades, is the realization that some of the molecules that can be left or right-handed. Yeah, uh, this is what he's picking up. Um, also in meteorites, there seem to be excesses in one direction or the other uh, that are actually quite difficult to explain why, they, why they're there. Uh, so, so that's one thing that that there is uh, some tentative evidence that potentially uh, a leaning towards right or left handedness could have been seeded uh, by molecules from space. Now, I think that's really interesting. But I would say where current origins of life studies are, uh, they don't necessarily rely on starting with having an excess of either right or left, uh, but think that maybe that's something you can sort of by chance develop uh, later on. Uh, having only right or left-handed molecules increases your stability and the ease at which you can build up structure of very long molecules. So it's definitely a good thing to have around, uh, but it's not obvious there's absolutely necessary to get this prebiotic chemistry started. Um, and I think to add to that, I think one of the big developments since that book is that several of the steps in going from these small molecules into biomolecules uh, seems to be working better uh, than people had expected or happen under more sort of realistic conditions than people maybe had expected. So while we're still very far from having a theory of origins of life, I would say some of the hurdles that are being put up about why this should be really hard have actually been been overcome. So we're at least moving in the right direction and uh, have during the past 20 years. So no, thank you for the question. And I hope that at least addresses some aspects of it.